Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Sam Shafter. We have a new co-host today. Welcome back to Eric. Hi everybody. Also with me today are Boya. Hello. Georgios. Hi. And I'm Hannah. Sam is a postdoctoral fellow at NIST where he is working on moving DNA computing circuits from the test tube to living cells. Before his current post, he completed his PhD at Johns Hopkins, where he was advised by previous guest Rebecca Shulman on synthetic transcription-based networks and their relevance to controlling bio-inspired materials. For this work, he won the 2021 Robert Dirks Prize for Molecular Programming. Sam, hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So uh, let's start with something uh, easy. How did you get into molecular programming? How did you find out about it? Uh, it's almost by accident, I guess. Uh, my undergrad was in biochemistry and bioengineering, uh, but I went to Purdue as an undergrad and most of bioengineering was focused on food processing. Uh, so I did a couple internships in the food industry and it was very far removed from, you know, biochemistry. Um, and I didn't like that so much. So I thought, oh, I'll go get a PhD, probably focusing more on biochemistry related things. Uh, and at the time I was dating a girl who's now my wife um, and she was looking at medical schools and was thinking about going out east to Georgetown. And so I hadn't even considered being from the Midwest, applying to Johns Hopkins. But she's like, hey, look at that. You know, it's right by Georgetown. So I started looking into, you know, different professors there and saw Rebecca's work. And I was like, oh, I've never heard of this field, but it sounds like the perfect mixture of, of everything that I'm interested in, you know, engineering, biochemistry. Uh, and at the time I was getting into a lot of self-taught computer programming. And so the idea of using molecules to do computations uh, was really appealing to me. So it was sort of a, a merger of all these things that I sort of stumbled upon when just researching grad programs. Does your previous work in the food industry ever come up with somewhat relevant in this new field? Or have you kind of moved on and just built off that foundation? Yeah, there isn't too much of the, the technical stuff that pops back up. Uh, maybe a little bit uh, if I had worked with hydrogels. Uh, Rebecca's group does a lot of that. Uh, so I did a lot of rheology and work with viscoelastic materials because that's what food is made of. Uh, so if I had gotten into that area of, of where some molecular programming is, maybe some of it would have applied, uh, but I never really did uh, very much of that so far. Um, I think maybe the biggest takeaway is just some of the industry experience, especially in the food industry that's heavy on marketing, maybe gives you some perspective of uh, you know, how companies think about marketing products uh, and things like that. So when you came across uh, Rebecca's lab, did you know you were going to go into the transcriptional circuit work that you did? No. <laughs> uh, so when I joined, um, I applied for the uh, NSF fellowship. And in that proposal, uh, we were still talking about controlling materials, but we were going to use DNA strand displacement because that's sort of what the lab knew uh, at the time. Uh, and then we started you know, trying to design circuits to, to do what we wanted. Uh, and we're having a lot of trouble figuring it out. Uh, and so we had a collaborator, Lisa Franco, who does a lot of work with these transcriptional circuits. And they had a bistable switch uh, from, from these. Uh, and I guess maybe a little background, what we were trying to do is build materials that could self-heal. So we sort of wanted to, uh, the idea was, if you have something that self-assembles, uh, if it gets damaged, just re-break it down into its monomer parts, and then it already contains the program to reassemble itself. So that was sort of our general idea is since damage, reset the state to the initial, you know, set of monomers and then let it regrow. Uh, and so that sort of sounds like you need two distinct states uh, and you need to be in them for indeterminate amount of times, depending on if you've sensed damage or uh, how long it takes you to grow. 
Uh, and so we started thinking about these bistable switches that have two unique states uh, that you can switch between. And we thought, oh, that might be a better architecture uh, to try to do this. Uh, so I went out and worked with uh, Elisa and a couple of her students uh, early on in my PhD for about three weeks in California. And they showed me everything about how to use these uh, transcriptional circuits or genelets, which I'll probably start saying throughout the whole thing. So <laughs> when I'm talking about genelets, these are these short transcription templates that can be regulated with DNA uh, molecules um, in terms of whether or not they transcribe. Uh, and so that's sort of how we got into it. And then I, you know, spent a lot of time, maybe the first two and a half years working on just that bistable switch and trying to get it, you know, to be able to do the dynamics that we wanted um, uh, to ultimately try to couple it to, to DNA nanotubes, which is the system that we were working on. Um, so, yeah, that that was not the plan. I was the only one at the time that was working on that in the group. Uh, and for, you know, there were some rocky parts at the beginning. Uh, and at one point, Rebecca was even like, maybe we should just scrap these transcriptional circuits and go back to DNA strand displacement. So, uh, but we eventually got it to work. And now there's three or four students that uh, are currently working on, on it in the group. And I sort of consult with them uh, about what's going on um, and, and try to help out where I can. So what were the key um, breakthrough points where you get the experiment not working to working? <laughs> the biggest one was... Uh, Almost everything that went wrong uh, was related to T7 RNA polymerase, this enzyme that we use to do transcription. Um, it has a, a number of weird side reactions. Um, not, not really side reactions, but reactions that manifest a lot more when you use things uh, that you have in DNA computing, like single-stranded pieces of DNA or overhangs, particularly three-prime overhangs. Uh, it turns out that the polymerase can initiate transcription off of single-stranded three-prime overhangs. And if you look at these genelets, they have a single-stranded three-prime toehold uh, for regulation. Uh, so basically what would happen is the polymerase would initiate transcription at that toehold, make a copy of the RNA that could then remove that DNA strand. So a lot of the issues that we had at the beginning was, you know, you'd put the genelet in there with the polymerase by itself, and it would all of a sudden shut itself off. And you're like, what the heck is happening here, you know? And it depended on which dyes you used and things like that. So for a long time, it was trying to, you know, we're trying to change conditions to try to get this to work. Uh, and, and all of our intuition was wrong because it wasn't, you know, falling apart because of any mechanism that we knew it was this other mechanism. Uh, and so I ended up reading a bunch of old literature from like the eighties about hardcore biochemistry around T7. And, you know, one day just connected all the dots. I was like, oh, this must be what's going on. And we ran a bunch of experiments and, and figured that out. Um, and so then, and some later work that should hopefully be published soon, we switched that toll from the three prime end to the five prime end, and then, uh, got much more reliable behavior. Uh, moving forward. So I guess that was the biggest breakthrough is, you know, figuring out what these side reactions are. Because once you know that, you can start to design against them, or at least decide that, you know, whatever you're doing is, is a dead end uh, and move on. Uh, so you've you said a bit about kind of genelets and, and transcription and, and all of these things. What would be kind of a, I don't know, two, three minute elevator pitch of, of your PhD work? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess the self-healing thing that I talked about is maybe the, the whole grand goal. Uh, I spent, uh, you know, half the time working on the genelet circuits and the other half time working on trying to dynamically control DNA nanotubes. And then, you know, we had a sort of failed attempt of trying to put those two technologies together. Um, and main reason being that T7 also transcribed the nanotubes and caused them to fall apart or have issues growing. Um, so a lot of the issues with coupling were T7. Uh, but anyway, the main thing that it, uh, I guess is interesting about these transcriptional circuits or, or why we uh, pursued building a lot of things with them is 
they're very analogous to gene regulatory networks uh, in biology. So you can sort of take the same topology of existing networks from biology and then implement them with this really simple system uh, that really is only short pieces of DNA that you, you know, can order from uh, a commercial company. And then two enzymes, uh, T7 RNA polymerase, which uh, for better or worse <laughs> is very inexpensive and is widely used um, uh, to do the transcription and production of RNA. And then you have another enzyme, RNAse-H, that can degrade RNA uh, in the system. So you sort of have this dynamic turnover uh, in the system. And what makes this nice is you can build things that can sort of continuously respond to different inputs. This is a challenge with DNA strand displacement because they're mostly sort of, in a sense, uh, thermodynamically driven. When you put an input in, it, it relaxes to some equilibrium state that's a lower energy than, than what you're uh, initially starting in. Um, or at least it's kinetically trapped to begin with. And once you unlock it, it, it falls into a lower energy state. So in these uh, transcriptional systems there, and I don't know, some physicists cringe at this word, but it's maybe the best description. They're dissipative, right? So they sort of dissipate energy, but they really just convert chemical energy and heat uh, continuously so that you can maintain a state that's sort of out of equilibrium. Uh, and this allows you to do things like oscillate uh, and as well as have this bistable switch where you can be in one of and we built a tri-stable switch as well, one of multiple different stable states, and then you can push it into those different states with different chemical cues. Uh, and so it's sort of a, a natural architecture to do that because you can basically use energy to maintain states that you wouldn't normally have access to uh, once you supplied a, a specific input uh, in a DNA strand displacement reaction, for example. I don't know if that was <laughs> uh, enlightening or that actually leads me to a, another question, like following up on the idea of biomimicry and reusing ideas from biology. Is this idea of something that senses damage, degrades, and then reforms, is that analogous to any biological systems? Or is this kind of a simplification of biological systems that you guys developed kind of using first like computational principles? Uh, I would say my initial inspiration was sort of like a salamander arm. And this is a very loose analogy, but I think it's quasi-correct. Uh, you know, like when a salamander's arm gets chopped off, the cells at the end of the arm sort of undifferentiate, uh, not all the way back. Well, I don't know how far, but they back go uh, to, to, I think, somewhere like pluripotency. Uh, and then they realize that they're on an arm, you know, adjacent to an arm. And so then they differentiate and regrow the rest of the arm. So in a sense, that's kind of like what our idea was, right? That if the monomers contain all the information to make the final thing, if you can just reset them after they're damaged, they'll regrow uh, into the, the pre-prescribed program. Uh, so that's a very loose analogy, but I, you know, is maybe similar to, to what we were thinking of. That was sort of my inspiration and in how I pitched that idea um, during my, like, um, I guess, qualifying exams and things was this inspiration from the salamander arm and then those two distinct states of the cells. Uh, and so that's why we decided to go with the bistable switch. You could think of one as differentiated and undifferentiated um, states. So were, um, were you able to construct any other designs um, other than switches? I know that uh, you, you're interested in sort of bio-inspired materials. Were you able to start to actuate any of those? Uh, well, so we built maybe a, a number of these bi-stable, tri-stable switches. Uh, we built a number of pulse generators and could connect those together to do sequential pulses uh, and then um, sort of connected those together so you could have two or three different states and then execute different pulses or temporal programs in each state. Uh, so those are sort of the um, programs that we, we were working on. And the idea was these pulses could, you know, trigger the output of something that could, could do something 
to a downstream material. So I focus a lot on uh, the DNA nanotubes. So the idea would you would pulse some invasion type strand that would disassemble the, the monomers and then uh, you would switch states and pulse uh, some other strand that could basically reset the monomers to be active and regrow them. Uh, so that was a one general idea. There's a lot of work now in Rebecca's group on trying to couple this to hydrogels uh, and, and see how uh, you can do these same kinds of things where you would either pulse the production of something that triggers a hydrogel to swell or expand uh, or different portions of it to swell and expand uh, to actuate things like uh, gripping and, and other sort of functionalities. Um, and the main reason for the switch was, as I said, that polymerase did a lot of transcription on the nanotubes. So things composed almost entirely of DNA uh, were sort of a bad match uh, for working with that polymerase. And so we thought, hey, if we go to these hydrogels, uh, they're only a little bit composed of DNA that holds them together. Uh, but it, you know, once we learned all T7's tricks, we could fix it. But when we initially put T7 with the hydrogel, uh, they, they would just fall apart because they're held together by crosslinks and it would transcribe the crosslinks and make complementary RNA and then dissolve the, the gel. Um, but we, we've been able to mitigate that with a, a number of sort of uh, little tricks. Uh, and, and so hopefully there's some promise moving forward there. So I in like preparing for this podcast, I read your 2019 Nature Chemistry paper. And in that paper, you spend a lot of time talking about kind of how good design can avoid cross-reactivity react and avoid um, off-target effects. How much do you think like the future of gene-lit computing and DNA computing in general is going to be like coming up with the best designs for things versus how much do we really need kind of more chemistry in our computing systems in order to avoid these problems? Can we get further if we use, for example, expanded base parasets or modified nucleotides in the systems? Uh, I think it does depend on the system. So uh, DNA computing can has already developed some pretty good tricks, like the you know restricted alphabet, where you know all single stranded things will just be CAT. I always think of RNA now, <laughs> uh, CAT, uh, and 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 so then you don't get much secondary structure there or chance for crosstalk. The challenge in the genelets is that you have two regions that will be single stranded and must be complementary, so you can't really use the three letter code. Uh, you know, you could make one be a three-letter code, but then it'll be complementary to everything else that's that other three-letter code, if that sort of makes sense. Uh, so there, I think, you you know, that there's going to be specific applications where an expanded alphabet would help, where you can't do some of these other tricks. Uh, I'm not a, you know, a total expert on DNA strand displacement, but, you know, I, they've pushed that pretty far. So I'm not sure how much more you'll get by expanding the alphabet uh, compared to some of the design rules uh, that have already been developed. Uh, so, so going back earlier, so you started in, in the Midwest and, and then you went east and you spent a bit of time um, in, in California. Which was your favorite of all those places? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, that's really the only time I've been to California for those three weeks. So I can't really say too much. Uh, I did like it out there. It was pretty cool. Um, and it was a successful trip. So, you know, you always look fondly uh, on <laughs> trips that work well versus if I had gone out there and made no progress. But I mean, I like it out east. We we decided to stay here afterwards um, after I finished my PhD. Uh, I don't have much interest in going back to the Midwest. Yeah, because now, so now you've moved uh, moved to NIST. What differences have you found between Johns Hopkins and other traditional universities and and working for NIST, a more kind of governmental organization? Well, uh, first, I will preface this with the entire time I've been here, it's been like the whole COVID thing. So, you know, I, we've never had an in-person group meeting. The cafeteria is closed. You know, there's restricted people on campus. There's rules about how many people can be 
uh, you know, in a room at the same time. So in that sense, it seems very, very different than <laughs> Hopkins because by the time COVID came around, I was mostly writing my thesis. So it didn't really disrupt me uh, too much. Um, and I haven't had any disruptions in terms of lab work here, but just, you know, it's not the same kind of camaraderie uh, when, when everybody's not around. Um, but uh, in many ways, it, our group at NIST is very, uh, still very academic. Um, so I'm in the cellular engineering group there uh, or here, and we do a lot of uh, stuff that's still pretty fundamental science where, you know, sometimes people hear NIST and think, oh, you know, it's just metrology and, and making standards and not as not as much cutting edge things, but how to standardize things that have, you know, been around for a long time. Uh, and our group is sort of not focused on that at the moment because it's still unclear exactly what the bioeconomy is going to look like. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about what are fundamental measurements you need to make in biology uh, to, to get it to work. Um, so in that sense, I haven't noticed a huge difference. You know, I have a, a lot of freedom to, to sort of work on uh, whatever. Um, and then uh, the key thing, which I thought was going to be difficult when I joined, is that everything has to be tied back to some sort of measurement need. So I'm like, all right, now I got to like rethink about, you know, how do I pitch these research problems? But it actually is pretty simple because everything you're doing in science involves some sort of measurement. So it's, it's in some ways easier than pitching uh, to other kinds of grant proposals because you're always doing some sort of measurement. So there's a way to, to tie that back in uh, and talk about uh, why the measurement that you're going to do is important or needed um, and, and use that as motivation to, to do whatever you want. Um, the other big difference is just the way the, the funding kind of works where, you know, we get a budget from Congress and, you know, that gets allocated across the different divisions uh, to do NIST, our mission related work, which, you know, <laughs> is defined maybe, you know, four or five pay grades above me, uh, but with a lot of input from the people that are, you know, doing the work. Uh, so as long as you can convince your supervisors that whatever you're working on is, is uh, in a measurement need that, that should be addressed in the field, you can kind of get uh, a lot of base funding um, from what Congress gives you to do that work. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a number of other internal proposals to try to get funding for more high risk stuff. Uh, but I think the big difference is to, to get started, you don't have to just like figure out what grants you're going to write, you know, and, and, and get funding that way. And so how does your work fit in within this grand theme of measurement? That's <laughs> a good question. Um, so when I joined, I didn't have an answer to that. <laughs> My supervisor, you know, kept pushing, you know, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? Uh, and so the way that I've been thinking about uh, this now and that our group is sort of working towards is, um, right, you know, in DNA strand displacement, there's uh, a lot of the state-of-the-art stuff is doing sort of pattern recognition, or at least that's what I'm very interested in. It's something that I haven't seen done very well with other chemistries uh, outside of strand displacement. Uh, so my general idea is if we could find a way to genetically encode strand displacement circuits made out of RNA, then we could do pattern recognition inside of a cell uh, in real time. And where this would be important is a lot of this is done now for diagnostics. Uh, so, you know, you can look at differential gene expression to diagnose cancer in some patient, but, you know, you need their a tumor extraction or, you know, a blood sample or something to do this. Uh, but it's ultimately looking at differential RNA expression. And so when you think about engineering biology, in, in many ways, different cell states are just going to be some set of differentially expressed genes. And if we could recognize that pattern, then in real time, we could know what state the cell is in 
and then, you know, tell it to do something if that's the state you don't want it to be in, or, you know, if it's detected something in the environment, you can detect that indirectly by looking at how it changes its expression. Uh, so basically the measurement here is measuring in real time differential RNA expression patterns, which gives you access to uh, measurements of cell state uh, in real time or measuring complex environments that you wouldn't be able to build sensors for uh, because they have 12, 15 different chemicals that go into them. But you might be able to access if you just need to basically look at what the cell's response is to that chemical environment. Uh, and so that's, I guess, the measurement that, that we're working on trying to do is a way to do this, this expression pattern recognition inside cells. So what is your approach towards working on that? <laughs> well, right. So far, my approach has been how do we make a system where we can genetically code RNAs that's just as programmable as DNA is, at least in a test tube. <laughs> so if it's as good in a test tube as DNA strand displacement is, then it has the potential to maybe be as good in cells, although it's definitely going to get worse and worse as you get closer and closer to cells. So, so far, I've been working on coming up with the best design principles uh, to genetically encode RNA molecules uh, that can behave like uh, DNA strand displacement circuits. Uh, and, you know, we've shown there's a preprint. I don't know if I've sent that along or not, uh, that, that we can do this and we can do it in a way that is, is very easy to predict with simple simulations. Uh, so right now it's, you know, we haven't made anything as big as been done, but been done in DNA computing, uh, but it's, it's comparable in terms of predictability, uh, at least in a test tube. So, um, but now the next step is actually getting it into cells. Uh, and, you know, that's a whole different challenge. So how are you planning to start the, the cell process? Do you have people who are experts in cells working with this, or are you going to become an expert? What, what is that process going to look like? Uh, the best way would be to work with people that are experts. So I learned a lot of the techniques when I joined uh, to get it in there. Uh, but when things don't work uh, immediately, um, I don't have the, the intuition that people that have been doing this longer have. Uh, we do have a number of technicians uh, in the group uh, that are much better at cloning and cell biology type stuff than I am. Uh, so I've been relying heavily on them to do a lot of the, the cloning and prepping uh, and everything. So I just mostly design what the RNA molecules are and say, this is how we should insert it into the plasmid. And then I have the uh, other people in the group that are uh, very good at this. You do all those manipulations for me. Um, and then we've been looking into other collaborators uh, in academia that, that do more of this type of work to sort of just get the tips and tricks into how to, how to do it. I would say the one to bring this back to some NIST stuff, the, the tough thing for me has been uh, doing the measurements of what you want inside the cell. So like, you know, you do everything in a test tube, I control all the contents that go in there. The only RNAs that are present are the ones that I produced. Uh, so you can run gels and you can see what's going on. Uh, you can, access all these things that are much closer to the, the actual thing you want to observe. And in cells now, you know, the way I'm trying to report on something is my RNA needs to uh, open up a ribosome binding site and then allow fluorescent protein to be translated. So, you know, I want to see what the kinetics of my interaction between two RNAs are, but I'm observing a fluorescent protein being produced. Um, so those kinds of things are, are where I've been running into a lot of challenges is how do you, you know, do a measurement that tells you what you want and also, uh, I found recently in a lot of uh, test tube reactions is, uh, you know, in DNA computing, you do a lot of stuff with fluorescent DNA reporters. And, you know, if the, if the fluorescence does what you think it does, the system, you know, you're assuming is working the way you designed it. Uh, but I've actually found in a lot of my uh, 
RNA gates is I can get fluorescent curves that look identical to gates that work well, but then if I run them on a gel, uh, they're not the right structure. <laughs> and so you're going, what's happening here, right? I'm making an observation that looks like it's right, but I know it's not the right fold. So, you know, um, how, do, how do you reconcile that when I move into cells? If the only output is fluorescence, I might be, you know, saying the thing works the way I designed it, but it's, you know, actually misfolded and reacting in a completely different way. Uh, so how do I get the same sort of uh, measurements inside the cell that I can uh, in the test tube. And so that's what we've been working on uh, a lot recently is um, taking a step back and saying, how do we do the right measurements so that we can tell this thing is working and working the way that we designed it to. So is that coming from RNA tertiary structure or um, just not being able to predict what structures RNA is going to form? So uh, maybe to to take a step back is the way I do this transcriptional encoding is to make uh, like in DNA computing, you have these DNA gates that are composed of two strands of DNA. Uh, and so the challenge uh, there is when you make all of these components, uh, they all have sequences that are complementary because you're building some sort of cascade of these reactions. So you make each one of these gates in a separate test tube so that they're all kinetically trapped before you mix them together. Uh, so the challenge when you go into something where you want to produce everything in the same test tube is how do you make these gates so that they're kinetically trapped and can't react, even though they're all being produced in the same place? Uh, so the way that I do that is I make one RNA molecule that's a hairpin initially. So it folds into a hairpin structure and then it has a ribozyme. So it'll cleave. And now that gives you your final double-stranded RNA gate. Uh, and so the biggest way of telling, you know, if something kind of works is I run gels to see if it cleaved and the efficiency of cleavage. Uh, and so what I've found is you'll, you know, you run a reporting assay, the, uh, the fluorescence all looks good. Uh, but then you run the gel and you find that almost none of this RNA cleaved. So it's in some sort of you know, structure where it didn't cleave, uh, but yet it's reacting uh, in the same way. Uh, and what's even more interesting is it's reacting with the input, but it doesn't react without the input. So there isn't any more leak, you know, which you might think if it's misfolded, it's going to you know, give you leak at least or something. Uh, but yeah, it lo looks undistinguishable uh, from, from gates that cleave uh, and work well. Um, so maybe in six months, this paper will be published. <laughs> I think I have quasi figured out what's going on. Uh, and it's actually relatively easy to solve, but um, it was very surprising at the beginning. And I think it's a cool sort of measurement type of story of, of you know, you make one sort of measurement and you have assumptions about what that means. Uh, and then you make an independent one and find out that you don't know what's going on. Not sure if I missed anything. What was your solution to the problem? To which problem? Uh... The reactions are controlled by the kinetically trapped structures, and there could be a lot of ways that things can go wrong. Yeah, so the way that, that we do it is instead of having two strands that need to come together, I encode both strands as one RNA that folds into a hairpin and then cleaves itself. Uh, so you make a, an RNA that folds really quickly into a hairpin and then cleaves to, to become a two double-stranded uh, gate. Um, um, but when the um, strand is being produced, um, some interaction can happen before any cleavage um, finish. So there could be some spurious interaction before the structure uh, correctly forms. Uh, that is correct. Uh, one thing, and this is one reason I continue to use T7, uh, but transcriptional folding is around 10 times faster than transcription itself. So the RNA should fold uh, before it's even produced. So that sort of is the, the key assumption, which turns out to, to be, uh, at least in our hands, look to be correct, uh, is that th this whole thing should fold into a hairpin uh, before 
uh, it's had a chance to interact with anything else. Um, and the hairpin structure, even if the cleavage reaction is, is slow, the hairpin structure is in, unreactive. Uh, so the initial thing that you make that folds into a hairpin uh, is very kinetically trapped, uh, basically thermodynamically precluded from reacting uh, until the cleavage uh, occurs. So at, at the moment when the, um, the, the structure you're trying to um, transcribe is just encoded onto short pieces of DNA, right? Yep. So the, the transcription is just terminated by the RNA polymerase falling off of the DNA. Uh, correct. I do put a terminator there because I wanted to make sure whatever I did in a test tube could readily be put onto a plasmid. Uh, so I have a termination sequence, uh, but if it doesn't terminate there, it would just fall off at the end. Okay. That was going to be my next question. How do you account, like, how will you account for transcriptional read through and like kind of a lot of failed termination when you end up putting this thing on a plasmid? So I will say we've put it on plasmids, and that is a, definitely a concern. Around 30% read-through is what I'm seeing for the Terminator I uh, picked. Uh, but when you do the plasmids in the same in vitro assay that I uh, work with, um, with the linear templates, I see very similar results there. Uh, so at least in that setting, it doesn't look like the read-through is you know causing a, a huge issue. Um, but it's definitely a concern when you get into the cell uh, that, that those other things could be causing uh, more problems. One thing we've been thinking about doing but haven't really you know, done um, is testing out a bunch of different terminators and picking ones that are better. You know, I think a lot of stuff in synthetic biology tends to just sort of be historic. Like I'm using the, the terminator that was found you know, in the T7 genome uh, and you know, because that's like the most widely used one, but it's definitely not the best one. Uh, and, and so that, that would be a solution and, and something we should definitely do. Uh, if given more time, I, I would have probably uh, done something like that. But once you get one thing to work, you're very hesitant to change anything about it, you know, so <laughs> uh, until it becomes a problem. So I think you, you said you solved the cleavage problem. How optimistic are you that um, all the different problems that come up when you move into a cellular environment can be fixed? Like, do you, are you worried that there might be some things that are just unsolvable in the, in quote, messy environment that cell is? Yeah, in the reasonable time frame. So I think some of the things it, it uh, may depend. So yeah, it could be difficult um, if stoichiometry is really important. That like let's say you have some cascade of reactions where you need all the gates to have some tight control over what their concentration is. That uh, might be an intractable problem. Uh, so I think what you do instead of trying to solve the problem is say, well, what kind of circuits can we build that don't need that requirement? Uh, and so I think a lot of the circuits that do pattern recognition. Uh, you can get around this as long as whatever you're transcribing is uh, at a higher concentration than the target that you want to detect. Uh, so now I can have a lot of variation in my multiple gates, but as long as I'm driving transcription of those higher than the, the concentration of the RNA to need to detect, I don't particularly care what their relative ratios are. Uh, so I think that's one way of reframing this problem of saying, instead of trying to solve it, just pick problems that are, you know, or pick circuits that are more uh, robust to those kinds of issues. Um, and not saying that will definitely work, but I think that's, that would be my solution to that problem is to say, okay, well, if, if I can't get it to work, if I can't control stoichiometry, pick something that doesn't, you know, require that kind of control. Yeah. So when you say, um, pattern recognition circuits, are you with these, um, with this transcriptional approach, are you able to reuse previous results in more traditional DNA strand displacement circuits? Like, for example, Kevin Cherry's neural network work. Can you use those or do you need to come up with new solutions? 
Uh, no, you can basically, I try to design this in a way so you could take the DNA sequence and in principle, just convert it to RNA uh, and get it to work. Now, there's a number of things you got to, you know, append like this terminator sequence, this ribozyme sequence. I always put this five prime hairpin so that I get similar transcription on everything. Um, so th those kinds of things you have to change. But for the most part, you can, you know, take the, the DNA sequence and, and use it. Um, there are some other tricks, though. Uh, so maybe I, I will tell a quick vignette then about where the co-transcriptional encoding differs from DNA. Um, so in DNA computing, oftentimes you reuse the same toehold so that you get very similar kinetics uh, across everything. Uh, and so I started to try to do that um, for my RNA strand displacement gates. Uh, and for the most part, in the first like three gates I tested this out with, it worked pretty well. Uh, but then I started running into this problem uh, that I talked about before where you had these gates uh, misfolding uh, in some sort of way where they could still react uh, in the, the desired way from the DNA reporting assay, uh, but would misfold and not cleave. Uh, and it turns out what happens when you repeat the same toehold sequence is there's two binding sites for the, one of the toeholds now in your RNA strand displacement gate. You have the, the binding site that is serves for the input and then the one that it's supposed to bind to that's like on the output domain, if that makes sense. Uh, and so what happens is when you transcribe this RNA molecule, the first binding site, which you don't want it to bind to, is transcribed first. Uh, so it can serve as a nucleation site for this other toehold to bind incorrectly to uh, and then cause the whole thing to misfold. Uh, so this, you know, if you change that toehold sequence to be something else, you solve this problem. Uh, so I think, you know, the design lesson there is you can't use the same toehold within the same gate uh, because of this uh, the way you're producing the molecules isn't driven necessarily by thermodynamics because, you know, you're not the entire molecule isn't there uh, at the beginning. You know, it's being produced in a sequential fashion. So if it falls into a, a kinetic trap, it may never come out of it or it takes longer than you want it to to come out of it. Um, so there's where one big difference uh, I've found already between DNA computing and, and this uh, that, you know, I tried to adopt directly the, the traditional strategy uh, and, it, and it seemed to fail. Um, because of the way these things are produced. So I believe when you design those circuits, you also use, probably use NewPacker or some other software tools to test those structures. But those, I believe those um, tools are based on thermodynamics. Yeah. So how, um, how reliable is the thermodynamics prediction of the structure compared to the, um, the co-transcription process where the strand is formed kinetically? Uh, <laughs> maybe not great. It depends on how you use NewPack. So one way that I've, tried to see if the uh, kinetically trapped structures uh, might be thermodynamically reasonable is you'll remove part of the sequence uh, so that the final state that you want the molecule to fold into uh, won't be present. And then you see what else it might turn into, uh, which sort of looks like having a truncated RNA while it's being transcribed. Uh, I don't know how much I would, you know, trust that when I was designing new molecules. A lot of it's in hindsight now. I know this molecule failed. Let me put this in and see if, you know, there's another structure that it might likely adopt. Uh, another problem with uh, NUPAC uh, for my particular structures, the ribozyme I use is pseudo-knotted structure, so it won't predict, you know, what that should fold into. Uh, so it's difficult there to, to determine uh, what's happening. Um, so far, we've had pretty good success other than this, when I changed this reuse the same toehold, I started to get a lot more gates fail. Uh, but I suspect when we switch to the two toehold system, uh, we'll have a lot more success where uh, I've tested like 15 different sequences with separate toeholds and only one of them didn't cleave and the rest all had connects within a factor of two of one another. Um, so I think we've settled on a, a set of tools that is 
not a hundred percent good, but uh, fairly good. Where you know, if you wanted twenty sequences, you could order twenty-five, and you'll get twenty that'll that'll probably work. Um, and we're you know, as we continue to build more, I'll get more and more insight into to that, and hopefully identify things that that go wrong, uh, and add that to the repertoire of heuristics to to follow. So thus far, you've discussed using the the output for these gates to modify DNA nanotubes to modify. Uh, hydrogels, and now you're looking at producing fluorescent proteins. How much has the design of the gates had to change as you are developing these, or is it pretty much just you switch out that last strand and you're good to go for whatever you want your effector molecule to be in the end? So far, it's, uh, but I haven't got it working in cells. So, so far, I haven't changed the design too much, uh, but I think there's some subtle things where the stem that I use is fairly short, only 16 bases. So I suspect when we go into the cells, we'll have to maybe extend that for stability uh, reasons. Um, so I've tested gates in vitro uh, with much longer stems, and those all seem to work. So we're sort of building a, a repertoire of different parts that uh, all seem to work well in vitro so that we have a library of things to try out uh, in the cell setting. So I've tried like six different orthogonal uh, ribozymes that all have the same fold as the one I use, but different sequences. And they might have different cleavage efficiencies as you move from one environment to the next. Uh, and so all but one of those worked in the in vitro setting. Um, and so now we have you know five of these that we can try out when we move into cell-free and into the cells. Um, so the, the approach has sort of been try as many things as you can, see what works in vitro. And then now we'll, we'll, we'll tweak uh, from this library of parts uh, as we move into the, the different environments. Uh, but again, a lot of it comes back to what are the measurements that are needed uh, for us to actually uh, determine what's all going on as we move across platforms. Ideally, we have the same kind of uh, way of doing this measurement uh, so that you can kind of calibrate it across platforms. And right now, uh, the way the way I'm doing things inside of uh, a test tube won't translate to the cells. And it doesn't even translate very well to the cell-free setting where I have tRNAs floating around and other RNAs. Um, so uh, again, a, a big measurement problem here <laughs> uh, coming coming into play. Do you anticipate any big problems with stochasticity as you move into cells? Like, you know, what, how, how many different uh, species can you actually have? Um, I, I guess in a mammalian cell, it's going to be more than a bacterium. But it, uh, if I'm thinking correctly, I think it's still possibly quite restrictive. Yeah, uh, I mean, that that is a, a good question. Hopefully what we plan to do initially is do, you know, a, much smaller type circuits target maybe four different RNAs uh, for the pattern recognition. Uh, one thing that I think is very compelling about using pattern recognition as a way to sense things in cells is you should be able to take the stochasticity of biology into account. So let's say if you, you, know, you, you want to recognize a pattern uh, in some population of cells. Well, if you do single cell RNA sequencing on them, you can determine you know, what pattern of these different RNAs are different, differentially expressed while taking into account the heterogeneity of each one across the population, and then build the classifier that will you know, do that robustly. Uh, so it should work much better at the single cell level than uh, the traditional way that you try to build uh, sensors where you're saying, oh, if the concentration goes above this, which is a measurement from the population level, uh, you know, turn on the expression of a protein. Uh, but each cell has a different concentration of that molecule, and so you're going to get a broad distribution um, so I think what, what would be really compelling here is if, if you could find a way to, to take into account all that heterogeneity uh, and then build a classifier that way. And so I don't know if that entirely answers your question. <laughs> I guess sort of side-skirting it. We, we want to harness the stochasticity uh, in some way. 
Yeah, no, I think it does. Like, I think that is the way you do it, right? You find a way to make use of the stochasticity to make a better system. So, yeah, I think it does answer. Are there any opportunities here for the kind of bottom-up cell community? Because there's kind of this divide right now between people who are trying to build cell-like systems from the bottom up. You have encapsulation and then some sort of programming in the cell. And there's the people who are taking cells and either stripping things out or adding new features as you are. And it seems like mostly you're focused on adding these two existing cells to build out some sort of sensor network. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about whether or not kind of this bottom-up approach would be useful for you to... um, like understand your systems in an encapsulated environment, or if you think that the like whole cellular milieu is the bigger problem than just encapsulation and uh, working in this isolated environment. I think that's a great uh, point. And so I initially tried, I went from the test tube trying to go straight into the cells and that did not work. <laughs> uh, and not, I think we got most of the parts in there, but it's just fundamentally different. And so now we've taken a step back and are trying to go into to cell-free uh, and making very gradual moves there. So starting in Pure Express, which is all purified components, the only other RNAs around are the tRNAs that have been purified and added. Uh, and already I'm seeing that the kinetics of strand displacement appear to be much different in that environment than in my test tube. Uh, and so they're probably only going to get different and different as we, as we move up the chain. So the next step is going to some commercially available cell lysates, uh, from E. coli that contain T7, and then finally taking the cells that I normally transform, preparing our own lysates from those, and then uh, seeing what's going on. Right now, our entire plan, uh, or at least my current plan, was to do this all uh, still in, in a test tube type environment instead of encapsulation. Uh, but but maybe you'll find that when you switch to encapsulation of the same thing, now you get different behavior uh, th- than you would uh, in the in the, the free floating solution. Uh, and that might be even closer to the cells. Um, so that that's definitely something that, that would be interested in exploring. Part of the problem is the issue is bandwidth. So this is uh, another thing, I guess, to get back to a much earlier question is a difference between government labs and academia. So here there's you know, just a much smaller group because most of the people are postdocs. And so the labor is a lot less inexpensive compared to grad students. Uh, so the groups tend to be uh, smaller and you have less less hands to, to do things. Uh, so we've been trying to find more collaborators that are interested in exploring these other avenues because we just don't have the bandwidth to do it. And so as the cellular engineering group, I, I'm, I'm focusing on the cell side of things, but I re- would really like to get into all these other uh, type of avenues. Um, and so we're, we're trying to talk to as many potential collaborators as possible and are always interested in if anybody wants to take this technology and try it for something else, uh, we're be happy to, to help with that. Um, and, and I'm sure we would learn a lot uh, from, from these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, we, we currently don't have a platform for doing the encapsulation, but it's something that, that one of the uh, members of the group is going to work towards as they work on preparing in-house cell lysates. Um, but it's probably six months to a year out um, in terms of me being able to take my strands and, and putting them in there. So long term, where do you see your research taking you? you know, at NIST and beyond? I know you've just finished your PhD recently, but like, maybe it's not too early to ask. <laughs> uh, so far, I like it a lot at NIST. And so by, you know, at least for the next five years, uh, my plan would be to, to stay here and try to, to see through this, uh, getting this technology working in cells. And the long-term vision would be doing this sort of single cell RNA sequencing and building these classifiers uh, in a very robust way where somebody says, hey, I want to sense this environment 
you culture cells in that environment, you do single cell sequencing, you run a quick algorithm to tell you your classifier, and then we compile that to RNA sequences and put it in uh, into the cell and get it to work. Uh, that's probably not a five-year time frame, uh, you know, more like a 25-year time frame. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'd like to get most of the parts of that working in the next five to 10 years, at least showing that, that for very simple systems uh, that, that we can control, that you can do this kind of thing. Uh, and then think about all that you could do if, if you could really do it on demand. What about a 50 or 100 year timeline? Where do you think we'll <laughs> get with this? stuff? Well, what, what's really, I, I continue to, because maybe this is just my imagination running out, but I continue to see, you know, the use of sequencing uh, to do the training for how you're going to build these things. Uh, and so there's a step that requires a computer. But I think the 50, 100 year time frame is that the cells somehow learn the pattern to recognize on their own. Right. And so th that would be the ultimate sort of thing. And I think there's some ways to think about this with cells and natural selection, that if you have, you know, billions of cells that all have a different pattern recognition circuit in them, uh, and then you enrich the ones that happen to do well, you know, you have some way of doing an evolutionary algorithm, you know, and enriching the, the thing that wins. Uh, the question is just how to integrate the feedback in there and how to prevent the cells from cheating the system, because it's really easy to cheat it. Um, but I think that's, you know, the 50 to 100 year time frame is you, you remove the computer completely. And you, the best thing of or the, the initial promise of all molecular programming and computing was that it, you have this massively parallel thing going on. So I think that's where we want to find a way to harness it is you've got billions of cells. They all have a different computer. And then we pick the one out. It automatically picks the one out that, that is the correct one uh, that, that you need to do the recognition moving forward. Um, I know a lot of people are thinking about this now, so you know they might they might get there in 25 years instead of 50 or 100. But yeah, it seems like a complicated problem. And I guess in order to get there, you've talked about reaching out to other labs. Um, what what's the, kind of like the basic research that you see needed in order to reach these dreams of cell-based systems? Is there any basic DNA and RNA biochemistry you'd really like to see get done within the next 10 years that would really help you? Uh, I don't know. I think the big thing, and this is a question of how do you go about this, but just so much context dependence in biology that, you know, I get something that works really well when I, that's the only strand that I, you know, the only sequence that's on the strand, but then as soon as you put it in a different context, it behaves differently. Uh, and so I think those are the kinds of questions uh, that I continually run into of like, oh, well, if I make this choice about just which plasma to put stuff on. Uh, is that going to affect things? What if I change one part of the gate on the same plasmid? Is that going to change things th that it wouldn't normally change if, you know, it wasn't inside the cell? Uh, and so those kinds of questions, I, you know, think are maybe the less sexy questions in science of like, well, if we just try all these different things, what, what do we come out of it? But those are almost always the papers you, you want to find where you're like, all right, I need like 12 of these things. So like, did somebody ever do this? Um, so those are the kinds of, of, of things I think uh, I would really like to see more of is a lot of mix and match of different parts uh, and, and trying to understand context or ways to remove the context. Um, and there's been a lot of work on this in synthetic biology uh, so far, but maybe not that there's no silver bullet yet as to the, the best way to do it. Thank you so much for joining us, Sam. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details of our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.